Tonight's reading is from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see your face to face, see you face to face, and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening. My name is Jason, one of the pastors here at Grace Downtown, and we're so glad that you've chosen to worship with us on this beautiful spring day. The first and second grade class is dismissed. They're heading out with their teachers now. We love having them worship with us, but they're going to head down for their lesson time. Uh, we are continuing in our series in the book of First Thessalonians, where we are talking about how to be good news people. When we hear the good news or the term gospel, we usually think about forgiveness of sins, what Christ has done on the cross on our behalf, his righteousness given to us, us placing our sin on him. That's what we think of when we think about the good news of the gospel. We're, well, in this book, in this letter, uh, Paul is writing a letter to this church in Thessalonica, and he is telling them how to be good news people, how to live in light of the gospel. And as we um, are in the middle here of chapter 3, as Dan just read for us, uh, we are going to be talking about prayer tonight. When you think about prayer, it's one of those things that seems obvious uh, to be part of the li life of a religious person, part of a, a Christian's life. If you were to just go out here on the streets and ask people, what are some major components of living a religious life? Prayer would be very high on the list. Even someone that knows very little about the specific tenets of a religion would pretty much assume and know that prayer is a part of it. So being a Christian, being a Christ follower, uh, being a good news people, prayer is definitely a key component of it. But it seems very confusing and elusive at times. It's something that if you ask around or you think about prayer in your own life, there comes with it a sense of guilt. Maybe you're not doing it right or not doing it enough. And I know very few people that think, you know what, I'm just killing it. I'm hitting home runs when it comes to prayer. I just pray it enough. I don't need to pray anymore. So how can it be such a, a big important part of living a religious life, but be something that's so confounding at times and, and so mysterious at times? Well, as we open up this passage in 1 Thessalonians 3, uh, Paul is going to show us a little bit about who Paul prays to and who good news people pray to. He's going to talk to us about how to pray. And then we're going to look at three things that Paul prays for. And it will be instructive for us as we are trying to be his good news people and as we are trying to be his church. And as we are trying to be people that follow him and carry out the Great Commission, the things that he tells this church are really timeless and they apply to us as well. And we really want to rally around this as a church because in order to be his good news people, in order to be people of gospel truth, gospel community, and gospel mission, prayer has to be an essential part of it. And I think it'll be clear why by the end of this evening. Would you pray with me and for me as we get started? Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you that we can pray. 
Thank you that we can talk to you. Thank you that we can hear from you through your word and your spirit and your people. God, thank you that we don't have to sound smart. We don't have to know all the things to say. Um, But God, we can just uh, bring our requests to you, bring our anxieties to you, bring our fears, bring our anger to you in prayer. God, we're so thankful for that. Thank you for what we see in scripture where your people pray and talk to you. Thank you for the example of Christ. Thank you for these letters written to these churches and how often they talk about prayer. God, thank you for giving us a guide, showing us what prayer looks like. God, I pray that we would not just become better prayers tonight, but that we would better understand the God to whom we pray. And we would understand more of your heart tonight as a good heavenly father. God, we pray that you would do your work as we hear from you tonight. I pray that this would be clearly your words that are spoken tonight and not my words. God, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to worship you in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn with me, if you haven't already, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. The first thing that we're going to take a look at in this section, uh, verses 9 through 13 is what we're going to be covering tonight. The first thing that we want to look at is how Paul prays. How does he pray? In verse 10, Paul says, as we pray most earnestly night and day. So the first thing we see is he prays earnestly. He prays most earnestly. This is one of those situations where when everything is translated into English, they put it into some words that may connect with us, but they don't necessarily capture the true meaning of what Paul is writing here. When we look into the Greek and when we uh, look into the original language that this was written in, when he says he prays most earnestly, what he is saying is he prays excessively or super excessively. He implores excessively when he prays to God. This same word is used actually in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when uh, Nebuchadnezzar um, he has a fire and he says you need to bow down to the golden statue. If you remember the story with uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Um, If you remember the story, he tells the people to turn up the, the furnace excessively. He wants them to make it as hot as it normally is, but then turn it up excessively. Same root word here that we're talking about. Super excessively imploring. This is a certain kind of prayer that Paul is praying. When we think about praying earnestly or excessively or imploring God, some things should come to our mind. If someone is praying earnestly, the first thing that we need to think about is that they are praying with a plan. They're praying with a plan. They have a plan to pray. The next thing we read is that he prayed earnestly night and day. That doesn't just mean that he prayed in the morning when he got up and he prayed at night before he went to sleep. What it's trying to capture here is the entire day. He is saying, I prayed both during the day and into the night. Paul is saying he prayed all day for the things he's praying for here. He prayed to God for the church in Thessalonica and the things we're about to talk about here. Paul had a plan to pray. Very rarely do I find myself accidentally praying. 
It happens sometimes in those kind of moments when you're half awake, half asleep, and like the Spirit is doing something, and you're like half awake, and you just, you're like, whoa, I'm praying. Oh no, this is a dream. Wait, maybe I'm thinking. Oh, I think I'm praying again. That happens sometimes, but most of the time, I don't accidentally start praying. I accidentally start worrying. I accidentally get angry. I accidentally get anxious about things. I accidentally think things about other people that I shouldn't, but I don't tend to accidentally pray. Paul had a plan to pray. That's how he was able to pray earnestly day and night. We also learn that Paul believes what he's praying. If you excessively implore someone, you believe in what you are asking for, And here he is believing that God can provide for him. He is earnestly seeking something from God. So as we look at how Paul was praying, it tells us about the ins and outs, the mechanics of prayer. And if we don't make a plan to pray, we will not be earnest prayers. It's something that we just kind of haphazardly do, or we do before meals, or we do when we feel really bad about a sin we've committed, or there's certain triggers or things that remind us to pray. But Paul here obviously has a plan to pray. The next thing we need to take note of is who Paul prays to. Who does Paul pray to? Verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Who is Paul praying to? Both the Father and the Son, Jesus. This is significant for a number of reasons. There's some Trinitarian theology here that we don't have a whole lot of time to dump into that, jump into that deep end there. But he is praying both to the Father and to Jesus, the Son. The other significant thing about that is that most scholars believe that this book, 1 Thessalonians, is one of the first books written after the ascension, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Scholars have landed right around the year 49 through like 51. They think this letter is written. So Jesus had ascended to be with the Father just 15 to 20 years earlier. He is praying to Jesus— that had just walked the earth 15 years previous. Here, Paul is saying something about Jesus. He's saying something about what he believed about Jesus, and he's also pointing to what we should believe about Jesus. That he walked the earth and that he was God. Paul is praying to Jesus. Paul believed that Jesus was God. That's why he's praying to him. Paul here shows us a high view of Jesus, the Son. We'll talk more on this later. We're going to spend the rest of our time taking a look at uh, this text. It lays out for us three things that Paul actually prays. Number one, that the apostles could visit. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith— Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. He's praying that the apostles would be able to visit. 
if you remember back to the beginning of the series or uh, if you look at the history of what's going on here in Acts 17, we read about what was happening with Paul and the other apostles. They desired to visit Thessalonians, the Thessalonian church again, but they were kept from going there. So Paul sends Timothy and he's telling them, I am praying that I would get to come back and visit you. Here, Paul is praying for the things that he needs. He's praying about real life. He's praying about his circumstances. He's praying about what he believes God has laid on his heart. I think we're hesitant sometimes to pray about what's going on in our real life, to pray about our circumstances. I think sometimes we think we need to sound spiritual or theological or holy And we don't always just pray for the things that we want or need or that we think God has asked us to do. Here Paul is showing us that he prayed for his circumstances. He desired to be with this church to check on them in person. And he's saying, God, I want to go there. I want to be with my people. And so he prays for it. We can pray about our circumstances. Here Paul is also praying for a straight path. Look at the end of verse 11 here. That our Lord Jesus would direct our way to you. Here he's asking for a straight path to them. No more shipwrecks, no more beatings, no more imprisonment. Just a straight path that he would get to them as fast and as easily as possible. I think sometimes we forget to ask God that things would go directly for us. That things would go easy for us. We're afraid to ask for that sometimes. But here Paul is asking for a direct and quick way to get back to the people that he loves. We see this throughout scripture. Old and New Testament people praying in the moment for the things that they need. We see Nehemiah going and appearing before the king and praying as he goes into the presence of the king that he would be able to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. We see Daniel praying in multiple circumstances throughout the book of Daniel. We see him praying at allotted times during the day, but we also see him just firing up prayers to God based on his circumstances. We see this in the life and the Psalms of David. We see this in Jesus himself when he walked the earth, when he would go and be alone with the Father, when he would pray about the things that were going on. We often forget that Jesus was in constant communication with the Father. And then we see Paul, the disciples, the other apostles, praying about the circumstances that are going on. I think we forget sometimes that God wants to be a part of every circumstance of our day and every single thing that we're facing and every single thing that we desire. God wants to be a part of that. He wants to talk to us about it. He wants to hear from us about it. And we can talk to him. And we don't have to have all of our thoughts put together. Sometimes I think I have to have this linear, very theological and wise, full of perspective prayer before I can pray to God. But what I see in scripture is God's people, including Jesus himself, 
just crying out to God. Jesus in the garden before he's arrested going, Father, if there's any other way to accomplish your purposes, please, can we do it the other way? We can pray about what's on our hearts. This might be a personal pet peeve, but I think that it fits in the context here and is helpful for us to think about, so I'll talk about it for a minute. Sometimes it drives me crazy when we pray for people to be healed or delivered from sin or addiction or we pray something, and then we always tack on, if it be your will. If it be your will. It's not a bad thing to pray, but I think sometimes we forget to just ask God to do a miracle and ask for the things that we need. In the book of James, chapter 4, James tells us, Sometimes you do not have because you do not ask. Jesus says when we pray in faith, God can do amazing things through just a little bit of our faith placed in a big God. We need to make sure we're not afraid to pray for the outcome that we want. And did you know that if you don't pray, God, your will be done, his will will still be done? Did you know that? His will is going to be done. Jesus, when he taught us to pray, he said, not like we pray that God's kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's fine to pray that. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray that. But let's pray that our loved one is healed. Let's pray that our kids don't get sick. Let's pray that we do well on our exams. Can I get an amen? Yes. Let's pray for the things that we face, the real circumstances of our life. That's what Paul is doing here. He wants to get back to his people, and so he asks God for a direct way. He prays earnestly. Interestingly, when Jesus talks about prayer, in the book of Matthew, Jesus says that the Pharisees pray— But they ramble on and they just keep heaping up more and more words and they do it publicly so that other people would think that they're spiritual. He says, don't pray like them. In the book of Matthew, Jesus shows us how to pray. He shows us who our Heavenly Father is. He shows us that we don't have to heap up words after words trying to impress others or trying to impress God. God. We can talk to our Heavenly Father. So first, Paul prays that the apostles could visit the people that he loved. He prayed for his circumstances. Number two, that the people, the church in Thessalonica, would increase and abound in love. Look at verses 9 and 12 with me. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. Then skip down to verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Paul is praying that this church would increase and abound in love first for one another and then for all people. That's what he's saying here. People outside of the church family, outside of the church walls, outside of the biblical community. He's praying that they would increase and abound in love. Paul is not just picking a virtue out of a hat. 
Paul is saying that this is key to being good news people. That they would increase and abound in love. And a pastor who established a church who is writing, writing a letter back to that church, there's not much better that he could ask for than they would increase and abound in love. And Paul knows to pray for this because of the things that Jesus established in how he taught the people. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus sums up the law and the prophets by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus summarizes the teachings of the Old Testament in love God with all that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. This love for God and love for one another is foundational for what it means to be in Christ, to be good news people. And then in John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus tells his disciples, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is how you're going to know. This is how the world will know that you are in Christ, that you are one of my disciples, that you are a Jesus follower, that his spirit is moving in you by how you love one another. This is incredible because the disciples would go on to heal people. They would prophesy. They did miraculous things. They preached amazing sermons as though they were speaking the very words of God. They upturned all of Jerusalem and eventually the Roman Empire in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says it's not by those things that people will know. It's by the love you have for one another. So when Paul prays for this church and says, I want you to increase and abound in love. He is saying it's foundational to being a good news people that you love one another. As you take a look at the New Testament, we read about the book of Acts and the church kind of forming. And then we read all the letters that Paul and the other apostles are writing to the different churches as the church is being established very rapidly all over the known world. And as you look at those, you see people coming to faith. And in the book of Acts, we even see like thousands of people coming to Christ in one day. The apostles will get up and preach and thousands of people are saved. We see the word about Jesus spreading and overturning Jerusalem and everybody is hearing about this Jesus. We see a lot of what we would call evangelism going on. You know what's interesting as we take a look at what's taking place there? Here's what we don't see much of. We see people coming to faith, but we don't see much of evangelistic events with giveaways and trying to get people in the door. We don't see awkward Jesus juke conversations. You familiar with this term? A Jesus juke conversation is when someone is just talking about something random where Jesus and spiritual things and Bible aren't a part of it and you awkwardly turn the conversation to Jesus because you're trying to share your faith with them. They're not having awkward Jesus juke conversations. You actually also do not see very many one-on-one conversations where someone is walking people through 
what it means to be a Christian. Now, we can see, we can imply that those things were taking place, and I'm sure that they were, and there's nothing wrong with any of those. Unless your Jesus juke is really bad, then I do have a problem with it. It's so awkward. But what you do see time and time again throughout the New Testament is people loving one another in the name of Jesus. And the outside world sees it and they want to be a part of it. Pastor Steve and I were talking about this this week and, and just looking at how often the people of God, the good news community, loving one another was attractive to the outside world because they saw them loving one another with a supernatural love. It was also fulfilling what Jesus said in John 13 when he said, the world will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Not only will people know that we are his disciples, but they will become disciples too when they see the supernatural love that God's people have for one another. So Paul here is praying that they would increase and abound in love because he wants them to know God's love, but then he wants them to share that love with the outside world. So he is praying for their little community there in Thessalonica, but he's also praying that they would fulfill the Great Commission by making disciples of all nations. And one of the ways they're going to do that is loving one another well. Here's the thing. We could grow numerically as a church in a lot of different ways. We could give things away. We could really fine-tune in how we're inviting people here. We could give more food away, and that's not a bad thing. We're actually going to have our first very purposeful evangelistic meal out on the porch this spring. It's not a bad thing. But we could grow numerically as a church. But if we're not loving one another well, we won't be growing in the right way, and we won't stay big very long. God is concerned with us loving him with everything we have and loving our neighbor as ourself. And that starts right here in the family of God. Because if we can't love one another well, two things are true. First John 4 says we don't know the love of God if we can't love one another. In fact, it says we're a liar if we say we know God's love and we can't love one another. But the other thing is if we can't love one another well, we will never love a world that doesn't love Jesus. This is going to break every rule of like um, speaking because you're not supposed to share quotes this long, but it's just so good. I had to share the whole thing and I'll put it up here on the screen so you can read along with me. I found this quote um, in the past couple weeks. This is from a New Testament professor at Fuller Seminary. She says, the Christian community is the school in which we learn to love. Like great musicians who practice tedious drills for long hours, Christians practice their scales at home in order to sing in public. If the community does not live by the model and teachings of its founder, Jesus, how can it expect others to do so or to hear its call to join with them? God has put us in a community and he is teaching us how to love one another so that we can love the world for Jesus' namesake. So Paul is praying that they would increase and abound 
in love. If you want to do something that is truly countercultural, if you want to do something that changes the world that we find ourselves in, if you want to do something that is truly noteworthy, learn to love one another well. I heard a New York Times columnist on a podcast this week, and he said that we, we, are the first generation ever that can post something online and say that we did something. We can share a blog about something that we believe in that someone else wrote. We can share it on our Facebook page, and we can feel like we accomplished something great without ever leaving our house or without ever putting our phone down. We share a blog about something countercultural or against the government or something like that. We share that on Facebook very easily in the comfort of our home, own home. And then we slap a resist bumper sticker on our moped and we feel really good about what we've accomplished. It's a unique time and place. And this, this is kind of a talk for another day, but I'll throw it in there. This journalist was saying that that's one of the reasons that our generation is struggling so much with depression and anxiety and hopelessness and suicide. It's because we feel like we should be accomplishing so much because technology and social media and targeted advertising is telling us, look how much you can accomplish. Look at how much you can do. But then we find ourselves not accomplishing those things and we're not getting happier and we're like, but I can have it all and it's still not making me happy? You want to do something really countercultural? You want to do something that really will give you fulfillment? Then pray to your God and love the world that he's put you in. That is a truly countercultural thing to do. And when we wake up each morning and we remember that God loves us and we make it our aim to love those around us, we are going to have a meaningful and successful and fruitful day. No matter what our circumstances or emotions are telling us. So Paul prays that they would increase and abound in love. And he says that they love that they would increase and abound in love for one another and then for all, which also means the world around them. Let's take a look at number three. He prays for their sanctification at the return of Christ so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. This return of Christ and what would happen at the return of Christ was a major concern of the church in Thessalonica. We can kind of tell why as we read um, through 1 Thessalonians. The return of Christ is mentioned in every chapter in 1 Thessalonians. And in fact, Paul says, I've got more to say about this. So he writes 2 Thessalonians, which is almost primarily about the return of Christ. This is a major concern of the church in Thessalonica. And one of the reasons is they seem to think that those that had died before them, they felt like Jesus was coming soon. And they're like, but what about our family that's died before us? It was a major concern of the church. And so Paul here is saying a little bit about what will happen when Christ comes again with his people. 
And what does he say? That he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before God at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Paul here is addressing what will take place at the coming of Christ. And what will take place is our glorification. We will be made blameless and holy before God. When we are in Christ because of what Christ has done for us, that's called justification. We're made right with God because of what Christ has done for us. He takes on our sin, he pays the penalty that we deserve for our sin, and he trades and gives us his righteousness. There we're justified. We're made right with God. And then, because we are in Christ, we're united with Christ, and his spirit lives inside of us, and his word is doing its work, we are becoming more sanctified day by day. Here, Paul is praying about our glorification, our sanctification being complete at the coming of Christ. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, when we see him, we will become like him. When we see Jesus, we will become holy and blameless. It's currently how the Father sees us, but we're still in this body of flesh. But when Christ returns, our sanctification will be complete. And that's what Paul is praying about. That they would be blameless and holy at the appearing of Jesus. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, God tells his people in the Old Testament, be holy, but I am the one who is making you holy. And then in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews picks up the same theme. Would you turn there with, with me? This is a huge, long passage. Again, breaks every rule of public speaking, but it's just so good that I want to go there. Hebrews chapter 10 Verses 11 through 18. This talks about the work of holiness that Jesus is doing in our life. Verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Because Jesus is our great high priest, because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, because of his Spirit's work inside of us, he is making us holy, and he has called us holy, and one day we will be holy and blameless before him. That is really good news. Part of us being good news people is looking forward to something that will happen in the future. 
We can look back at what Christ has done for us in the past. We can look at currently what his spirit is doing inside of us. And we can look forward to his glorious return when our sanctification will be complete. Is anybody out here ready for their sanctification to be complete? Me too. Me too. Because some days it looks like I'm not going to make it. Some days it looks like I'm going to mess the whole thing up. Some days all I'm hearing is God's command to be holy. And I'm just so aware that I'm not. I see myself stumble and fall over things that I was stumbling and falling over 20 years ago. I see myself go back to sin patterns that I thought that I had forsaken. I see myself praying in the morning, God, make my day about you. And by 10 in the morning, it's all about me. I need his sanctifying work. And I need the hope that one day that sanctifying work will be completed. And here he is saying it will be completed at the return of our Savior, Jesus, who brings the church with him. And he brings a kingdom He comes and he establishes his rule and reign for all time right here on this earth. And we will be made like him when we see him. And that's really good news. We live by that good news. We proclaim that good news. We don't just have good news about what happened in the past. We don't have just good news about what happens today. We have good news about what is to come for those who are in Christ. And right now we are told in Romans 8 that Jesus is interceding on our behalf. We're told in 1 John that he is our advocate before our Heavenly Father. Who is doing this sanctifying work? Who is establishing our hearts? It's Christ in you, our hope of glory. Philippians 1 6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And because of what his word tells us, and because of his spirit's work, and because of the gospel, your sanctification is as sure as your justification. And that's really good news for you, for me, and for this church. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to continue to be in a spirit of worship because of what you have done for us. God, we pray that we would be your good news people. God, we pray for each one here tonight. God, I want to lift up each person and where they find themselves here tonight. God, if anyone needs hope, I pray that you would be their hope. God, I pray that if anyone needs that good news that one day their sanctification will be complete, I pray that they would receive that word from you tonight. God, if anyone here needs to know if they're right before God, I pray that they would turn and cling to Jesus and what he has done for them. God, we pray that we would be your good news people as we increase and abound in love for one another. God, we pray that we would be a people that prays excessively 
earnestly imploring our Father in heaven for the things that we need, for your purposes to be accomplished, and for your kingdom to come. And God, we look forward to that day to come when your kingdom will come and your will will be done in our hearts, in our church, in our lives, and in this world. We worship you now, Jesus.